श्री गोरी वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाए ग्रंथराज श्रीमद भागवतम की जाए सो कंटिन्यूइंग आवर डिस्कशन श्रीमद भागवतम इन थर्ड कैंटो और एक्सक्यूज मी थर्ड चैप्टर ऑफ द फर्स्ट कैंटो एंड व्हाट इज दिस चैप्टर अबाउट avatars okay that's right that's the right answer <laughs> that's the right answer well yes and then and what is the main main point to be learned from this chapter thus far yagni you can't give all the answers that's unfair krishna's too bhagavan swayam which means right he swayam bhagavan He's not just Bhagwan; he's Swayam Bhagwan, the original Bhagwan. He is not a dep- dependent avatar, but the independent avatari, source of avatars. So we learned this, and we concluded that section. And um, Sutta Goswami speaking to the sages. Of course, he's answering a question raised by them. One of the questions in the first chapter: Tell us about his avatars. Hmm? Krishna's avatars, and um, and this the, the section was concluded with a, a Sutta Goswami statement as to the fruits of hearing about this, and properly and with attention in a yogic sense, and uh, with mind control and so forth. Hearing about the avatars, the secret Janmukuyam uh, Bhagavato, the secret mysterious birth. Of God, who's unborn, uh, it's a, really a co- kind of a complex theological, philosophical subject. So, who has paid attention in the yogic sense, listened from proper authorities about this? It is it is mentioned that uh, they get freed from material existence. So, now he continue to the end of the chapter, and two subjects are covered. First subject is that uh, Sutta Goswami wants to begin to further um, emphasize the eternal nature of the appearances of Bhagwan in the world. Hmm? Remember, we've heard they're made of Vishuddha Shatva. They're not material, ephemeral. They have eternal forms, and so on and so forth. So he wants to emphasize that by way of contrasting a another form of the Lord, two other forms of the Lord, that other types of transcendentalists at times become preoccupied with, that are not eternal. By contrast, although they are mentioned in the Bhagavatam and in the Bhagavad Gita and so forth. So he says, "Etad rupam Bhagavato." He arupa sirchiratmanaha, mayagunar virachitam, mahad adibhir atmani. So, etad rupam bhagavato. He says, This etad rupam form of the Lord of Bhagavato. Hmm? You may remember that this chapter began with Jagrahe Purusham. Rupam Bhagavan Mahadadibi. As I said, the subject is Bhagavan and he 
accepts the form of the Purusha, the Paramatma, for um, uh, manifesting the Mahadadibhi, the world. The Mahad, and means Mahat, it means the Mahatattva Adi, means etc. Mahatattva and everything inside of that, you know, all the, all the constituents of the uh, material nature as described in Sankhya. The senses, the sense objects, uh, mind, intelligence, and, and so on. There's a, there's a kind of a, they like to call it not evolution, but a, what do they? What word do they sometimes use? Emanationism, something like that. Elements emanating out of others, and the world coming into shape. That's just describing sankhya. So, here we find two two words here that are also found in that first verse. We find Bhagavato, that form of Bhagwan. It means Maharadibir. Hmm? Means again, Maha, that, that all these. That that uh, from whom the world comes, sit full of all these different uh, ingredients, they're in him. They come out right, and different, and they come back in in cycles, so forth. So he's talking about Bhagwan, and he says that um, that form of Bhagwan that's being discussed here, who through the Peru takes the form of the Purusha and then incarnates in various various forms for different purposes. He arupasya chidatmani. Hmm. He is arupasya and chidatmani. Hmm. It means he has no form. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, he has arupasya chidatmani. Arupa means form. So he has no form and he is chidatmani, which means he is transcendental. So, what does it mean? It mean, it means that um, that uh, again, his form is not material. Wherever we find the term used throughout the sacred texts or terms that describe the Lord as formless, which there, in which there of which there are a few, some in the Bhagavatam we could find in the Upanishads and so forth. Our uh, acharyas have taught us that this is um, a way of saying that his form is nothing like material forms. Why? Wait a minute, it says formless. Because there are thousands of statements that speak about directly about the eternality of the form of Bhagavan and his different avatars and so forth, constituted, as I said earlier, of Vishuddha Sattva. So there are, there are thousands of statements like this. And there are a few statements that speak of him as formless. So it, it's another way of saying the same thing, that his form is eternal, transcendental. It's not like a material form. Hmm? And, you know, it, it is similar. Hmm? Krishna is particularly, it's a two-handed form, human-like, it's said, but the verses want to tell us that there's a, there's a big difference at the same time. The Goswamis have been a very expert at showing how these statements are properly understood in this way by giving us a context to understand them, the context for understanding the entirety of the Bhagavatam. So here, while making this point that Krishna's, that Bhagavan's form is eternal, that it's chidatmani, that it's made of transcendence, it has 
as we are understanding it, arupasya, no material form, there's another form that now this is being contrasted with, maya gunair virachitam mahad, mahad adibir atmani. Hmm? So maya, material energy, gunai means the gunas. Hmm? So the gunas are qualities. Sometimes uh, the, the Lord is described as nirguna. What does it mean? There are the three gunas, Rajagun, Tamagun, and Sattvagun. We know that our our bodies, both our psychic dimension of our material self and the physical dimension, are made up of the gunas. The different constitution, the different combination of the gunas um, makes for a different disposition, right? Makes for a different physiology, and um, and so on. But But... Our, our psychic dimension and our physical dimension are, of course, different from ourselves, categorically different. We talk about it. They're different, and there's, there's, but sometimes there's more similarity than not, given our conditioning. That's why we take into consideration, for example, our physical uh, physiology and our psychology when pursuing a life that transcends both of them. Hmm? For example, Varnashram says, a person should work in a certain way according to his physiology hmm? and according to his psychology, hmm? um, even though they're different. The soul is different than, it's, than the psychic dimension of ourselves. The soul is, is different than the physical dimension. But the soul is identified with them in such a way that to work with those, that conditioning hmm? is conducive to coming out from underneath the psychic and and physical dimension of the self. So we can say, just like we could say, well, this, uh, spiritual life is different than material life. Spiritual life is different than psychology. That's true. They're categorically different. But they're, given the extent to which our spiritual self is entwined with material nature, then uh, we should learn to work with it in such a way. That's the whole idea of Varnashram, actually. And, of course, we talk about that in a more progressive way, given our time and circumstance today, um, as well, being psychologically balanced and so forth, has helped us trace out some of our motives so that we can go forward and, and so on. So this is relevant here because here he's going to speak when he says, Maya gunair virachitam, mahadati viratmani. He says that um, that the, the, the self, the atmani of the Lord, it's a reference really to the paramatma, the purusha, is the foundation of this world made up of the Mahat Adi and the rest of the elements that comes out of it and um, out of him and all constituted with a, with a common, with, you have, I should say, the, the gunas in an undifferentiated uh, state in a, uh, what's the term, in a, in a, Pradam, yeah, in a, their um, kind of, neutral, and then that's agitated by the glance of the Vishnu, and it, the whole show starts to unfold, material existence. So uh, there is another form that's being described here, the form of the universe in which we conceive of the Lord as, in terms of things that we can see, the universal form, to use Prabhupada's terminology. Hmm. So, um, he wants to say that um, 
while these eternal forms of the Lord, the avatars we've talked about, there's another form of the Lord who is without form, without gunas. We know Krishna has qualities, right? How many qualities has Rupa Goswami attributed to Krishna? 64 different qualities in describing the Vishayalambana. It's part of describing this Vishayalambana uh, Vibhav. One of the ingredients for rasa means you have to have an object of love and then you have to have the, sh- the love itself, the shelter of that love. So Krishna is the perfect object of love. The way in which Rupa Goswami very beautifully and profoundly goes about describing Krishna as the perfect object of love includes or also involves listing of these 64 qualities and, and so on and so forth. So we know Krishna has qualities, really unlimited qualities. 64 have been highlighted. I think in the, maybe in the Krishna Sandarbha, Jiva Goswami is highlighted like, I think, maybe 84 qualities of Krishna. So it's not limited. He has unlimited qualities. And he's near Guna. So what does nirguna mean? Hmm? We know that uh, nirguna means without the modes of nature, transcendental to the modes of nature. We we teach, for example, that during the time of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, there were a number of people that were advocating a form of nam-dharma. You have Tukaram hmm, in Maharashtra. Um, I don't know so much about Trukram. I think he was a Vaishnava. You have Kabir, you know, the famous poet Kabir. He advocated Nam, also chanting the names of Krishna and Ram. You have um, this um, Guru Nanak, the founder of the Sikh tradition, Satnam. Throughout the Guru Granta, you find the advocacy of the repetition of the names of, uh, of Ram and Krishna. Um, a number of them. Uh, they were they were Bhakti traditions. They were Nam traditions. But they were Sagunanam traditions, Saguna Bhakti traditions. In other words, they were traditions that that thought of 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 Krishna, of the name of Krishna, which Mahaprabhu taught is non different from Krishna, as being constituted of the Sattva Guna. Hmm. And you have an undifferentiated Brahman that appears in a form constitutes sattva guna, and that form helps you to come to the nirgun when the form disappears, and so forth. Hmm? This was their idea. But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu advocated a nirguna nam. In other words, he, he, he meant to say that, that the name we're chanting, hmm, it, 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 it continues into the nirguna, into the nirguna, in beyond the modes of nature. Nirguna is pretty much universally understood as transcendental to the modes of nature. So to say that Krishna's form is nirguna is not to say it doesn't have any qualities. It says it's transcendental to the three gunas. So arupas, the same idea. Hmm? His form is not a material form. Hmm? Hmm? And there is a form, now it's contrasted here, that is material. That's conceived of, the implications here, by certain yogis, wherein the, the the universe is looked at as a form of the Lord. We have an example of this in the Bhagavad Gita, a famous example of theophany of of the um, 11th chapter. Hmm? Arjuna, uh, Krishna is speaking about vibhutis. Vibhutis have been mentioned here in terms of the avatars. Hmm? Um, 
after the avatars, vibhutis have been mentioned. It's a type of manifestation of the Lord. Then Krishna goes in the 11th, that's 10th chapter, 11th chapter, and when Arjuna says, you know, you said in the previous chapter or a few minutes ago that, that you were this, you were that, you know, of bodies of water, I am the ocean of mountains, of the immovable things, I am the Himalaya, to extend that, like, like I like to say, of of trees in Northern California, I am the redwoods. You know, and it, that's what it means. Any powerful manifestation of nature that, that, that causes some, like, awe and inspiration and, and wow, you know, that this is a manifestation of, of Krishna, he says. So, after saying that, Arjuna says, you know, you said all that. It's really interesting that you're all these things, but is there any way you could show me that you're all these things? And there he does it. You know, he shows the whole universal form. And so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a material form. It's described as an imagined form for the sake of meditation. Krishna demonstrated everything is inside of himself, and Arjuna was not very happy with it. Hmm? <laughs> he saw it, and he, was, he wanted to, like, let me see your forearm form. More than that, let me see again your two-arm form. This is what I have love for, and this is a lovable form, this universal form. You can't put your arms around that. You can't kiss, kiss the cheeks of the, of the universal form. He's got too many cheeks, too many. You know, the descriptions of the universal form, they're poetic descriptions that are meant to say, I am everywhere. There's nothing outside of me. There was a recent uh, review of, of um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Brian Green. This is Yogeshwar's brother who hosted us at, at his house and at uh, the um, Jivan Mukta Yoga Center when we were in New York, who's a well-known uh, physicist and author. So his recent book is, um, well, another book about, popular book about physics and so forth. And the reviewer of the book, whose review we, we, we posted on The Harmonist, began his review with a brief description of the universal form in uh, the 11th chapter of the, of the Gita. And then he explained what Brian Greene was coming up with as reasonable and scientifically based, based on observable evidence, ideas about multiverse and uh, all possibilities and, and whatnot. And, and so he made the connection. This sounds like the more forward we go, the further back we're going into the time of the ancients and the visionaries, the seers, and and so forth. He made a correspondence like that. So this is a poetic, mystical kind of vision and description of something that has some um, basis in, in modern uh, cosmology also, which is a real uh, uh, um, Kind of, a, it's unique, I would say, in spiritual traditions to, to Hinduism. There's a number of these kind of correspondences. The, the, the fire at the end of the world idea in the Bhagavatam. And they say, you know, it'll burn out from heat ultimately. And there's, there's many evolution. There's some evolution in Bhagavatam of the sword and, and so on. It was even, as far as these avatars go that we've been discussing, there have, there, there's a, there's an obvious some type of connection and similarity there in the way that the avatars are described. The ten basic avatars, for example, in Jai Dave Goswami's um, 
Gita Govinda that he prefaces his beautiful poem, love poems of Radha and Krishna with. He prefaces it with the with the um, um, Das Avatar Stotram, which says at the end of each each uh, description of the avatar, Kesha Badrita, Narhari Rupa Jaya Jagadishar. It says Krishna is the supreme personality. Keshava is the personality of God. This is one of his avatars, basically. So at any rate, there is a correspondence there. You see that the first avatar was the uh, there's the amphibian, the Matsya, and then the reptile, the uh, Kurma, and then the what the Varaha, right? the mammal, and so. Thinkers of over the time have have made the point. Bhaktivinotaka was one of them, and others as well. That there's some correspondence here. They had some ideas. Maybe and maybe they believed in evolution of some sort. Of course, they, they did in a way, but it's a consciousness-driven evolution, uh, which is different than than what's thought of today in terms of evolution. But but at any rate, that's a real uh, a beauty in a, in a sense of uh, we we can appreciate of Hinduism, that it's visionaries, it's seers, it's rishis. Their descriptions of the world, as fantastic as they are at times and as mythological as they sound, they they have more correspondence with modern, with the modern scientific ideas than we find in other religious traditions. So, so at any rate, they dis- the, 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 the Gita describes this universal form. Bhagavatam describes it in different places as well. It, and clearly makes the point, as is being made here, this is a material form, and it's different than, than the forms of the avatars that we've talked about. The implication is, and it doesn't come here, but it comes later in the second canon, in the tenth chapter, that these, these, this form is not meant for the devotee's contemplation. And we saw that in the Gita. Not only was it not, Arjuna said, I can't, I'm not, sorry I asked. You know, <laughs> let me see your, beauti- your beautiful form, you know. And he very beautifully described that form as well. Um, there's uh, the interesting thing I think here, or one of them is that, that the more there is specificity with regard to the object of love, the more potential there is for loving. Love is very specific and the more that the object is kind of vague and the more abstract uh, the love becomes. In Gaudi Vaishnavism, the love is not abstract. It's very very specific. Hmm? And it brings out, out of the many, many, many qualities of Bhagwan, certain particular qualities that correspond with a particular devotee's love and so forth. And, and Krishna is reciprocating with all of them you know, differently, showing himself a little differently with emphasis on those qualities. So on. So the universal form here, hmm, made of the gunas, hmm, um, in, uh, uh, and the mahadadibi, the ingredients that were said earlier, are coming out of the Mahavishnu. There's a form like this, and he wants to say that form is not like the forms of these avatars. There's a couple of verses now in this connection. We'll go through them quickly here. He says then uh, that he will. He gives next. He gives an example. He says that clouds and dust are carried in the air, but those who are abudibi, aropitaha, aropitam, he says, abudibi, budi means what? Intelligence. Those who are abudibi, not very intelligent, 
they arop. Arop means like to attribute. They, people, they, you can't see the sky. You can't see the wind. But you see clouds in the sky and then you kind of see the sky, you say. The clouds are in the sky because they're, some, they're up there and so, or you see uh, dust, dust in the air and you think there's, the wind is going. So they identify the clouds with the sky. They identify the, um, the wind or the air with the dust they see in it, but actually these things, dust is not the wind, the air, and the clouds are not the sky. So similarly, people see the, in an imaginary way or in a meditation, both the gross and a subtle kind of um, uh, universal form of the Lord, but they don't actually see the Lord. They don't actually see him. Hmm? Um, so he gives this example. Clouds and dust are carried by the air, but less intelligent persons say that the sky is cloudy, the air is dirty. Similarly, they also implant material bodily conceptions on Bhagavan or on the self. Now, this verse can be translated that way also. On the self. And the implication is going to be, as we see, unless those... Um, coverings of the self are uncovered, the self will not be able to see itself or to see Bhagawan as he is. So he has talked about Bhagawan. Now he's talking about how the fact that you have to come out from underneath the gunas, that Bhagawan manifests through the Purusha and then descends as the avatars. If you want to understand him, the mystery of his appearance, the Bhagavad Janmukuyam, mysterious birth of the Lord, then you have to come out from the covering of these various ingredients to meet your maker because he's transcendental to them. So he goes on, he says, after giving the example, he says, beyond this gross conception, material conception of the, of the Lord, um, is another subtle conception of form, which is without formal shape and unseen, unheard, and unmanifest, the living being, has his form beyond this subtlety. Otherwise, he could not have repeated birth. So it's referring to the subtle body that the jiva moves from body to body in, in, in the process of reincarnation through. And uh, so he, he gives an example that the jiva has a subtle body. If he didn't have a subtle body, he couldn't move. This is the vehicle that he moves from birth to birth. So similarly, there is a subtle universal conception of the Lord that yogis becomes become preoccupied with so the yogis are very preoccupied with the chakras and the, the subtle body and and uh, becoming acquainted with that and so forth and apparently they have some kind of subtle universal sense of the of of, of the form of the lord which is bhagavatam must say is also material and the implication is and as i said as it comes out in the second canto in the speech of uh, later on in the 10th chapter there, these forms are not the forms for the devotees to meditate on. The devotees who have awakened faith in Bhagavan, they should meditate upon his eternal forms, upon the deity of Krishna, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Their, their method is different. And Arjun illustrates this in the Gita. And of course, most people think that's the most profound form. He showed it all there. He's God, you know. And this, the, 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 the theistic uh, devotees, the Vaishnavas, they have a very different 
opinion. Of course, they show in the text of the Gita how that's so. And, but it's hard for people to get to, to understand the eternality, the nirguna, the arupa nature of Sri Krishna. Hmm. Uh, I've given an example before that, you know, when you go from material life, which is confining, the physical and psychic, you know, sense of self is somewhat confining, you go beyond that to Brahman, oh, it's unlimited space and so forth. Then you start to go to Vaikuntha, it looks like it's getting smaller again. There are forms, and, and then you go to Vrindavan, Goloka, and it's even smaller, it's like a, a village, but it's getting bigger, actually, because affection is increasing, a possibility for uh, reciprocal dealings with Bhagavan increasing as the specificity of the object of love comes into focus. How can you love Brahman? Hmm? And, you know, as I say, you know, the, those jnanis who like Brahman, they love to be, and the devotees be to love. Hmm? <laughs> That's the difference. One thing is to ex- love to exist, the other thing is to exist to love. This is where the devotees and the jnanis they differ, and so their objects of love differ. Hmm? So there's not much love in, in the Brahman conception. Is this the loving to be, and loving not to not be, as it appears is our position in material existence. So there's a moving away from something negative, and there's a little loving in there, loving to be eternally. But it's a whole different equation when you be or you exist only to love rather than love to exist. Hmm? So, <laughs> so these are not uh, um, our concern, these forms of the Lord. And both, he wants to say two things here at the same time. Forms of the Lord, subtle and gross, that are imagined as universal for the sake of meditation, are different from Bhagwan's form and the forms of the avatars. And the jiva is covered by both of these. And until he comes out from underneath those... The mystery of Bhagawan's descent will not fully be understood. As I said, we should work with those hmm, subtle and gross forms of ourselves in such a way that we don't, we have to work with them, as I like to say, with the mind rather than against the mind to get the upper hand ultimately. But we are different in constitution from our mind. We are different from our, our body. So whenever, he goes on, whenever a person experiences by self-realization that both the gross and subtle bodies have nothing to do with the pure self. At that time, he sees himself and Bhagwan. At that time, he can understand. That time, he can understand what's been talked about in this chapter. If the illusory energy subsides, the living entity becomes fully enriched with knowledge by the grace of the Lord, and he becomes at once enlightened with self-realization, thus becomes situated in his own glory. Thus, learned men. Describe the births and activities of the unborn and the inactive, which is undiscoverable even in the Vedic literatures. He is the Lord of the heart, ultimately. In the bhakti context, then, the Bhagwan becomes the Lord of the heart, and that's the form that should be meditated upon. Not the Purusha, not the Paramatma, but Nandanandan, Krishna. Satyanandan. This form of the Lord should be meditated upon, and this will uncover the coverings that cover us and enable us to realize Him. So, um, 
couple more verses here, and then he goes into the end of the chapter, which describes one more special avatar of the Lord. Hmm? So stay tuned for that. That's a very interesting uh, discussion. Anyone know who it is? One more avatar is going to be discussed. Hmm? No, no, Kalki's already been mentioned. Hmm? I'll give you a hint. He's going to discuss one more avatar in the context of answering one more question of the sages. What? No? 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 <laughs> it's a very different avatar. Hmm? No, but you're getting closer. Nam avatar? What? Guna avatar, no, no, no. <laughs> the Bhagavatam is the book avatar, so stay tuned for that. Kantara Srimad Bhagavatam Kidya. Go Premanande. Hari Hari Bo.